Welcome to Present Value. Hey, Present Value listeners, Austin Blaze here, president of the Sustainable Global Enterprise Club at Johnson. I'm thrilled to introduce a conversation between Bernardo Espinosa and Professor Natalie Mahawald, who recently served as the lead author on the United Nations Climate Change Report examining the effects of a 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in global temperature. Professor Mahawald gives us an insider's glimpse into the intersection of science and diplomacy from her work with the UN, shares the substance of the report's findings, and offers her insights on our path forward from a scientific and business perspective. This is an engaging conversation on one of the most important topics of our time. Here's Natalie Mahawald and Bernardo Espinosa. I'm your host, Bernardo Espinosa, and today I'm excited to welcome Professor Natalie Mahawald to the studio. Professor Mahawald is the Irving Porter Church Professor of Engineering at Cornell University in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, and is also a faculty director for the Atkinson Center for Our Sustainable Future. She earned her undergraduate degrees in physics and German from Washington University in St. Louis. Her MS in Natural Resource Policy from the University of Michigan, and her PhD in Meteorology from MIT. She has numerous scientific awards to her name, including being named a fellow of both the American Meteorological Society and the American Geophysical Union. She was named by Thompson ISI as a highly cited researcher and has over 170 peer-reviewed publications. She was also a lead author on the special report on 1.5 degrees Celsius from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, approved in October of 2018 and has previously testified before the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology of the U.S. House of Representatives. We want to spend a majority of our time exploring your work as a lead author for the United Nations 1.5 degrees Celsius report. But before we do, can you give us a brief sense of the historical evolution of climate science? I guess I entered climate science a little bit late, to give you the early history, but I think it's been really changed by the 1.5 report and the coverage that that report received. And I see so much in the newspapers and on the radio about climate change now. And I'm very excited about the change and that perhaps our report helped push that. There's been a lot of reports recently, I think, that have highlighted the importance of climate change in terms of the impacts, as well as the potential for innovation to solve the problems. So I think that both of those are leading to much more coverage of climate change. What was unique about this specific UN report? And what did you take away from your experience working with both scientists and diplomats at the international level? Wow, well, there's a a lot in there. This report was unique in several ways. One of the fundamental ways it was unique is that it was actually requested by the governments. And normally, the IPCC puts out assessment reports, say, every seven years. And right now, we're in the midst of the sixth of these sets of assessment reports. And then a few special reports intermittently. And this particular special report is the only one that was ever requested by the governments. And they really wanted the scientists to look at 1.5 degrees. All the previous work that had been done by the IPCC had looked at business as usual, of course, which might reach about 4.55 degrees C at 2100 above pre-industrial levels, or the lowest of the previous levels that we'd ever looked at would reach maybe two degrees, keep global warming below two degrees by 2100. And basically, at the same time as the Paris Agreement was being signed at the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change, COP, the Conference of the Parties in Paris, 
the same time that the governments were getting together to say that they wanted, as a goal, to stay below two degrees, the governments from some of the countries that will cease to exist if we actually go to two degrees because they are low-lying island nations, these countries made a passionate appeal that we should see if humans really could go below two degrees if it was possible. And as a result, then the governments asked the scientists to look at 1.5 degrees. And so the point of our report was really to look at 1.5 versus 2, which had previously been assessed. And this really highlighted, I think, you know, something that the governments felt that the scientists shouldn't be telling the policymakers what they will do, but rather telling the scientists, you know, please tell us what we have to do if we want to keep temperatures below 1.5. Don't tell us what we're going to do. Tell us what we have to do. And then tell us what the benefits are. So that really focused the report on a very low target. Right now we'll pass 1.5 degrees warming if the current trends continue in 2040. So, you know, that's only 22 years from when we released the report. Now it's only 21. And in addition, we have to act so quickly to get to the 1.5 degrees. And this is where often you hear in the news that we have to act in the next 12 years or now 11 years, or we can't meet the low climate targets. And we have to be reducing carbon dioxide emissions by 2030 in order to reach these low carbon targets. And that's soon. And I think that urgency really speaks very well to people. I was a little surprised that we might look at 1.5 degrees because from a scientific perspective, we think of it as so unlikely that policymakers and humans will reduce their emissions that quickly. But I think that it got actually quite a bit of publicity because of the urgency of the issue that we will pass 1.5 so soon and that we have to act so quickly. So to dig more into the political side, what was it like working alongside policymakers? And were there certain fault lines that emerged within the debate? So each of the reports that the IPCC puts out are approved by the governments. So the summary for policymakers. So our report, for example, turned out to be about 100 pages. And then at the front of it, maybe 10 pages was the summary for policymakers. So all the key elements from the underlying report, the assessment report, where we take a look at what the scientific literature says, all the key elements are pulled up into the summary for policymakers. And the governments, line by line, approve everything that is in the summary for policymakers during these sessions. And and these are closed sessions, so I can't talk about anything that went on behind the scenes there. But really, as the authors, what you're trying to do is explain to the government scientists what your goal is for the following set of statements, for example, what in layman's terms this statement says. And secondly, then we give the specific language that we are proposing And then the the governments will come back and have interventions, they're called, and maybe object to one word here or the content there. And this is where governments of certain countries will argue about the science, to be honest. And so any objections they might have, for example, some governments from perhaps, you know, fossil fuel producing countries tend to want the IPCC statements to be as weak as possible in terms of the climate change impacts. And other governments that are, for example, from island nations that will cease to exist, they tend to want all the statements to be as tight as possible. And so they will make arguments about what the scientific literature says to try to change kind of the scientific assessment. And so you have both of these arguments going on on both sides. For the most part, the scientists have already heard these arguments because the documents have been out for review. And so we don't usually actually change the text very much, but these arguments are made. And I think it's misleading that we sometimes hear 
on the U.S. press that there has been no debate about climate change because, of course, each one of these approval sessions has a debate about the science of climate change. But it's all behind closed doors, and we can't really talk about specific governments and how they're placing the blame or what kind of arguments they're making. But this happens behind closed doors, and they have read every paper that we cite, and they are willing to argue about any statement that we put in the summary for policymakers that will have implications for their government. Now, of course, they can only argue on a scientific basis or they can argue that it was not in the approved outline. So it's not something that we should be talking about. Those are the only two arguments that they can make. They can't make a political argument. They can only make a scientific argument. And so it's really up to the scientists then to say, okay, this is what the science says. So we're willing to modify it like this to accommodate this detail point that you want to make. But, you know, it's up to the scientists to make sure that each individual sentence actually reflects the underlying literature. And then the governments approve or disapprove that each sentence reflects that underlying literature. So some of their sentences were highly debated behind closed doors. And you can imagine to some extent which ones were the highly debated ones. But so governments will tend to make scientific arguments that express their political views. So that's very interesting as a scientist to experience. And for the most part, it's pretty clear what the scientific justification is and what the political motivations are maybe to tilt to one side or the other. And so that makes it so that the scientists kind of have a very clear path forward. Now, some of the government and the government scientists are really just there to support the scientists. They just want the science to be extremely clearly expressed. And so that is the bulk of many of the governments are really just there to make sure that the science is accurately portrayed. So those government officials are actually very helpful in the process. And as I understand it, the governments didn't ask just for the scientists to look at 1.5 degrees Celsius, but also how the response to climate change could support the UN Sustainable Development Goals, such as the alleviation of poverty. What was it like incorporating these additional goals into the report? So the title of this report, which I'll go ahead and read to you here, I mean, we call it the 1.5 report in shorthand, but the full title is an IPCC special report on the impacts of global warming of 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels and related global greenhouse gas emission pathways in the context of strengthening the global response to the threat of climate change, sustainable development, and efforts to eradicate poverty. And this is very broad for an IPCC report. I often look at this and I just think that we were expected in a 100-page report really to solve the world's problems in one report. So it is much broader than most of the climate change reports we write, and especially this emphasis on sustainable development and efforts to eradicate poverty. This is a really important part of this report, and it, I think, really points to something that's not clearly articulated in some of the debate in the United States, and that is the connection between efforts to eradicate poverty and get rid of hunger and really remove extreme poverty, especially in developing countries, especially, and climate change. So here we in the United States or the developed world, we got rich and got to where we are now by emitting a lot of CO2 accidentally. We didn't mean to, but when we burn fossil fuels, when we cut down forests with our agricultural intensification, we have emitted a lot of CO2. And it it turns out that the CO2 is accumulating in the atmosphere. The 25% of the CO2 that we emit probably will be in the atmosphere for tens of thousands of years. Okay, so this is our problem is that it's really accumulating. And, you know, we've gotten to this point on the basis of emitting CO2, so we in the developed world, and that's how we got this wealth that we have, this cheap energy and just cutting down forests. 
Well, the developing world would really like to be as wealthy as we are. They want to live our lifestyle. You know, up till now, the only way we've known on how to make people rich, to bring people out of poverty, is by accidentally emitting CO2. And so this report really puts at the crux then people in, you know, developing countries that want to eradicate poverty and have sustainable development versus climate change. And is it possible to achieve both? And really what this report tries to find are a menu of choices where we can cheaply supply energy, for example, you know, wind or solar, and allow for development and convert developed countries like ourselves from being unsustainable, as we are now, to a more sustainable form of developed country, and then allow the countries that need to develop, where the poor and the vulnerable are, to move out of poverty in a way that does not threaten climate change and so that they're not going to emit so much CO2. Lots of times people put climate change as a business versus environment problem, which might be true in the United States. But fundamentally, it's really a development versus climate change problem and finding this new pathway forward that allows for sustainable development. And that's what the report has really focused on, is finding that menu of choices that people in each individual community or country can choose from that would allow them then to develop in a more sustainable way. When dealing with small changes in degrees, it's sometimes difficult to fully appreciate the impact of those small differences. The report goes into detail on the various implications of several warming scenarios. Can you walk us through the global impact of 1.5 versus 2 degrees, which was the target of the Paris Agreement, and if instead we were to continue business as usual? So one of the things that this report forced scientists to bring out and emphasize a lot more than had been previously is how, you know, does it matter if we reach 1.5 versus 2? Does a half a degree matter? It really, it doesn't sound like much. Does it matter to people? And I think that this report really served the purpose of instigating a lot of new science to answer that question. And basically, yes, it does matter that we can look at the statistics and the statistically significant change in a lot of the impacts on people. For example, it matters for less extreme weather if it's 1.5 versus 2, less extreme heat, then the rainfall changes will be less. The global sea level rise will be less, and there's a lot fewer people who are exposed, 10 million fewer people exposed to the risk of rising seas, for example. So half a degree does matter. Now, in this report, we were asked to just look at 1.5 versus 2 degrees, but I'd like to put this in the full context. As I mentioned, you know, in the business-as-usual case, we reach 4.5 or 5 degrees at 2100. And so if we don't do anything, that's where we'll end up. Until about 2014, that's where I thought we were going to go before the Paris Agreement. In that case, you know, we're at 4.5 or 5 degrees C. So whatever the impacts are that we see today already at 1 degree warming or at 1.5 or 2, each little increase just has more impact on humans and more impact on ecosystems. And when you reach up to 4.5 or 5 degrees, it's extreme what's going to happen. So we want to keep the temperatures as low as possible. That's what all the research shows. It's just every little increase, every half a degree matters for climate change. So I'm hoping you can paint a picture for the rest of us. How would we be affected by a temperature change of 1.5 versus 2 versus business as usual in our everyday lives? I think a good example is sea level rise, for example. And if we just take a look at what will happen for sea level rise by 2100, it's about 10 centimeters lower, which is maybe three or four inches in layperson's terms. 
when you want to think about sea level rises, you want to think about it during a storm. For example, here in New York, Superstorm Sandy, the storm surge was when the damage occurred. And if sea level is three inches higher, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but it's a lot more water getting in a lot more places. And so the first time we'll see the impacts of things like sea level rise will be during storms. That's the important thing to recognize. You know, when there's not a storm out there, that's not so important. The first time we feel it is during a storm. And all the damage that was caused by the superstorm Sandy was really during the storm surge, or a lot of the damage was during the storm surge. And so very small increases in sea level mean a huge increase in the area that becomes flooded, as well as how much water you're talking about. You've mentioned that in order to meet these more ambitious targets, closer to 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius, we need to rapidly develop, scale, and share new technologies, particularly technologies around carbon capture. What are some of the current trade-offs around that technology? So, What this report has made clear, as well as some of the previous reports, is to keep to low climate targets, like 2 degrees or 1.5 especially here, we're going to have to develop carbon dioxide removal technologies or negative emission technologies, which is how the National Academy of Sciences refers to them. These technologies then take CO2 out of the atmosphere that we've already emitted and put them somewhere, either in products or in soils or forests, or sequester them geologically. So the integrated assessment models that are used to look at the emission pathways that will reach different goals in this report or these type of scientific reports tend to focus on bioenergy and carbon capture and sequestration. It's called BECS, bioenergy, carbon capture, sequestration. So what that means is the bioenergy is basically using plants to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere and put it into plant stock, like corn, you could think. This is what plants do. They take CO2 and they make organic compounds with it. That's just what they do, and they're pretty good at it. So that's the bio part. Then you can take the plant stock and burn it. For example, the corn ethanol, we burn it in our gasoline now. So that's a bioenergy, and you get energy out of that burning. Now, if you have a power plant that is being fueled by bioenergy, and you take the CO2 that's coming out of the smokestack, and you capture it and put it down into the ground instead of letting it go into the atmosphere, that's called carbon capture and sequestration. And then you're allowing the plants to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere, but then burning to generate energy, just like we have to right now using coal-fired power plants, natural gas, oil. And then instead of allowing the CO2 to escape, then we sequester it. So This is currently the cheapest and most technologically capable carbon dioxide removal process that is used by the integrated assessment models to reach the low levels. Now, the problem with this is is simply how much land and water, fresh water, and the challenges that the bioenergy then would place onto ecosystems. So, for example, you might need most of the agricultural lands that are right now being used for food in the U.S. when we would have to transition them to bioenergy in order to sequester enough carbon to keep to the 1.5 limit here. So where are you going to get food from then? Are you going to take native ecosystems and impact biodiversity, or are you going to impact food security? You know, so we're going to have a choice where we're going to have to choose what we're going to use our land for. So that's the problem with those technologies. Now, there are some forms of carbon dioxide removal that we currently have the technologies for that are actually 
easy to do and make complete sense. One is stop deforestation and actually reforest again. And that sequesters carbon because trees sequester carbon. And that will actually help biodiversity, for example. In addition, soils, if they contain more carbon, if we can put more carbon back into soils, they actually become more fertile. And so it's actually been a problem that soils have been losing their carbon. So if we can reverse that process, if we can manage our lands differently, agricultural lands, we can actually sequester more carbon and make them more fertile. These are win-wins, both of these land-based carbon dioxide removal systems, the soil carbon sequestration and the reforestation. And they're actually pretty cheap methods to do this also, so they make complete sense to do. The only problem with them is that they just can't sequester enough carbon to solve the problem. We need about 20 gigatons of carbon dioxide per year being sequestered, whereas they can only do maybe one or or two gigatons, depends who you believe. So this is the problem with relying only on these kind of shifts in land management. But they're win-win approaches, so there's something we really want to do. But the only one that we can scale up to the 20 gigatons we might need is the BECs at this point. And that's the issue that we want to develop some new technologies. And there's, I don't know, almost every day in the newspaper, you read about some new technology that could sequester carbon dioxide and either turn it into a fuel or a plastic or some new clever method to use that CO2. So I'm very excited about this area of research, and we've really been trying to enhance what's going on here at Cornell as well as across other universities in terms of facilitating more innovation in this really interesting area. You've touched on it a bit. I'm curious, what is the current state of research on carbon capture? I know this has become a research priority for you here at Cornell. So here at Cornell, I became interested in it a couple years ago as part of my work on the 1.5 report made it clear that we really need carbon dioxide removal. And then also I became faculty director at the Atkinson Center. So in that role, my job was to really start to connect people and try to build new synergies and work with outside partners to make sure our research here at Cornell has an impact on the real world, in this case, trying to solve climate change. So what we've been doing here on Cornell's campus is having a set of workshops. Then we also had a workshop down in D.C. and gathered together the best academics, the public sector, non-governmental organizations, and colleagues out in private industry who are interested in this area to really think about what kind of research agenda we need in order to address carbon dioxide removal. And, And for that, we were focusing on the human side. There's been a lot of work on the scientific and engineering side. There's a couple of new reports with the National Academy of Sciences on this. But anytime you want to get a new technology researched and deployed, and here we need widespread deployment, you have to make sure that humans are going to use it, that society will accept it, that it's actually a good idea. And that's really the human side that we need to evaluate. And so that's what we emphasize for that workshop. And we've also been supporting research here at Cornell, along with our outside partners, which we've been working a lot with Carbon 180, which is a non-governmental organization really at the forefront of a lot of the work on coordinating carbon dioxide removal research, as well as trying to get more public policy supporting it down in, in D.C. One common perspective is that we'll be able to simply innovate our way out of the climate problem without a great deal of public investment or behavior change. Is technological progress sufficient enough to manage this problem, in your opinion? Well, I find it kind of funny because I actually think I am an optimist for technology, to be honest. You just see how solar and wind have all of a sudden have gotten so cheap. And, you know, I hope in the next few years we really see widespread deployment of those technologies. And so I am very encouraged by the potential for technological innovation. 
it's not clear that that's going to happen fast enough. I think we need, of course, to do more research in some of these areas. I mean, we do have the technologies that potentially could solve the problem for the power industry, but we don't have them for certain other industries. And so we need to develop new technologies still. But we need to create an environment where businesses that are able to innovate and deploy technological innovations can do so. And so I I do see an important element from the government side to try to encourage private industry to invest and do their first development and to first deployment in these areas. I guess I feel like the advantage to the United States is really how good we are at technology, how good we are at technological innovation, how good we are at business innovation. And this is where I feel like the U.S. should be playing a role at the front of this problem and in, in, in solving this problem. I think we have an obligation since we accidentally happen to be at the front of causing this problem. But we also, this is what the U.S. is great at, is technological innovation and new business models that will solve problems instead of cause them. So I, I really hope to see the United States taking the lead on this. I'm a little disappointed because I think right now the Europeans and the Chinese and the Indians are actually being more aggressive in the space of low-carbon technologies than I see here in the U.S., so I hope that we start being more aggressive in this space. And I think American technological and business innovation can make a huge difference in trying to solve this problem, but we need a good regulatory environment. You've mentioned the differences between adaptation and mitigation. Could you walk us through some of the distinctions there and the significance of each? So in the climate change community, we refer to mitigation as reducing emissions of CO2 and some of the other greenhouse gases. So that's mitigation. And then adaptation is trying to deal with the consequences in a more intelligent way one can think of. And, you know, when climate change first became an issue, a lot of times the scientists and the environmental groups, for example, didn't really want to think about adaptation. They only wanted to think about mitigation. And at this point, because we have a serious problem, we already have to adapt. People are much more willing, and the you know IPCC puts a lot of emphasis on both mitigation and adaptation measures. In addition, in the last few years, we've also added this other element, the carbon dioxide removal. And it, it used to be we didn't want to talk about that either in case it stopped the mitigation. But at this stage, if we want to reach the low climate targets, we have to be talking about mitigation, carbon dioxide removal, And we're going to have to adapt. We're already at one degree C warming versus pre-industrial. And we have to adapt to that across the world. The U.S. as well as other countries are falling behind in terms of adapting to the climate change we've already experienced. To stay on the topic of adaptation, what are some of the behavioral changes that we could adopt to help reach some of these more ambitious targets laid out in the report? Well, in terms of better adapting, there's a lot of different things that we have to start thinking about. Here in the state of New York, we're probably going to see more rain in the mean and more of it coming down in fewer events, so more extreme precipitation events. And that changes the way that we want to build our bridges and our infrastructure. And of course, the sea level rise in New York City, that's a huge issue. How is that city going to adapt to the amount of, of sea level we expect? And of course, we don't know exactly how much sea level we're going to get because we don't know what we're going to emit. And then we also don't know how fast, for example, the ice sheets would melt. But we can expect to receive much more sea level rise later, that it's kind of a slow feedback system with the sea level rise. And making sure that our cities are well adapted means, you know, pulling back or allowing more areas to be inundated just to take care of that extra water. 
But there's been some interesting examples of adaptation just recently. There was a tropical storm that hit India. I don't know if you saw this in the news, but what the Indian government did was move several million people out of the path of that tropical storm. And everyone expected there to be thousands of people who died from that tropical storm. But indeed, because they moved people out of the path into pre-built structures that could survive the hurricane, I think the number of people who died, I think I saw it was, it was something in the 20s. This is huge. This is huge that you know a developing country like India used its knowledge of the potential for these kind of storms to better adapt. And this is wonderful news that so few people were adversely impacted, lost their lives from that storm. This is the kind of thing we need to do for adaptation is try to deal with the fact that under climate change, we expect more intense hurricanes, not more of them, but the hurricanes to become more intense. And if we don't do anything about it, along with the higher sea level, we're going to have huge impacts to coastal regions and islands. But if we recognize that we need to be planning for these kind of extreme storms, we can do so much more and we can save so many more people's lives. The impact of those hurricanes on Puerto Rico or North Carolina in recent years, that's just devastating. It's heartbreaking. And we don't know for sure that any of those storms were directly caused by climate change alone. You know, all we can say is whether the, statistically speaking, it was more likely or not. But those are the kind of storms we fear will happen under climate change. This is what we fear will happen. And so, you know, how do we communicate that and make sure that people plan for these type of extreme storms? That's what we need to do as part of the adaptation. I mean, we also need to adapt to more drought in some parts of the country or um, more heat events, you know, all these different effects that we expect from climate change. We just need to start thinking about as we move into the future and hopefully as we rebuild our infrastructure in this country. Your research on both land use and the cooling effects of aerosols, although outside the main focus of the 1.5 report, suggests that the problem is even more complex than the report indicates. Can you walk us through your research on these topics and their implications for mitigation? So I guess I have kind of two areas of research that you just mentioned that were relevant. And one is looking at how aerosols, which are little solid or liquid particles that are suspended in the atmosphere, how they impact the land and the ocean. So we know that aerosols, and other people have done a lot of research, that aerosols in general reflect back the incoming solar radiation. And so in the net, they tend to cool the planet. They also interact with clouds and might make clouds brighter, which if they're brighter, that means that, again, they're reflecting more light, so they cool the planet. My own area of research is how those same aerosols that we've emitted, humans have emitted, actually have potentially fertilized both the land and the ocean. And by fertilizing, that means that it makes the phytoplankton in the ocean more productive and they draw down carbon dioxide a little bit more. And on land, you know, the plants are just a little bit greener because of the aerosols. And so this is called the biogeochemistry, aerosol biogeochemistry interactions. And a lot of my research focuses on this and has pointed out that anthropogenic aerosols aren't just cooling the planet by interacting with the solar radiation, but they're also cooling the planet because they're reducing the CO2 levels. They're enhancing the uptake of CO2 by the land and the ocean. And that this might actually be cooling the planet as much as the other effects, which are much better known. 
this is kind of an, a new area of research and it's not very well incorporated into the integrated assessment models. And if it's true, it would mean that in the future, as we reduce our aerosol emissions, which we really need to reduce our aerosol emissions. Aerosols are terrible for public health and they cause all the visibility problems that you'll see, for example, if you see pictures of Beijing or some towns in India where you can't see anything, that, that's aerosols. They're terrible for people. So we really want to cut those aerosols. But when we do, we will inadvertently get rid of a sink for CO2 and so we'll have more CO2 left in the atmosphere. So this feedback that I've spent a lot of my time working on is actually a feedback in the climate system that will make it harder in the future to reach lower carbon dioxide levels, potentially. So that's unfortunate. On the land use side, we've taken a look at the interactions between land use and wildfires and agricultural fires and take a look at what their contribution is to climate. And our work has pointed out that a lot of these integrated assessment models that we use to do these climate projections are really underestimating the amount of land that is converted to agricultural use each year right now. And they just assume that we can stop deforesting and, and stop converting natural lands to agricultural lands. And they don't really have a mechanism for that. And to me, that's that's a really hard problem, getting people off the land that they're already on or stopping them from expanding into natural lands is really, really hard. There really isn't good mechanisms for that. I mean, we did slow down the Amazonian deforestation for many years, but now it's ramping back up again, for example. So that's a big problem. And the integrated assessment models that we use for the future climate scenarios tend to underestimate how much land is converted. And because of that, then they're underestimating, I think, how hard it's going to be to stop that land conversion and how important that's going to be for climate policy. So I guess my own research has suggested that these simple integrated assessment models might be a little too optimistic about how hard it will be to solve the climate problem. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to focus on solutions and looking at the carbon dioxide removal solutions that might be possible in the future. As a business school podcast, we'd be remiss not to ask about the responsibility of the private sector in addressing climate change. And we've seen that a lot of major public companies have started to create departments addressing this. What are some of the responsibilities of the private sector in addressing climate change? Well, I think sometimes people underestimate the role of businesses in the environment. I don't know, probably 95% of the environmental decisions are made by businesses. So I think that businesses can play an incredibly important role in solving environmental problems. Now, of course, businesses have to, in the end, make money. And so I think it's the responsibility of the governments then to create an environment that businesses can make money and yet try to think very proactively about environmental questions like climate change. So I do think that corporations can play a huge role. I think the climate change problem, and I think the students today are the ones who are going to have to deal with the climate change problem. It's not going to go away soon. You know, it's something it's taken us 150 years to get to the point here where we're in a developed country and we happen to emit a lot of CO2. And it's going to take us at least another 100 years to solve this problem on the fastest pace. So I think business school students and all students need to be thinking about how to help solve climate change. And there's so many different aspects of solving it, right? There's looking for business opportunities with technological innovation for cutting carbon dioxide emissions, for 
removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, as well as for better adaptation and making sure that the businesses don't too much adversely be impacted by climate change. And I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for businesses both to innovate their own models as well as to use technological innovation to try to solve the climate change problem. So I think business schools are there at the crux of solving climate change. And I do hope that many of the students from business schools really think about the context of their careers and how they can help solve this huge problem. I'd like to take the opportunity to ask you, an accomplished climate scientist, your views on where we stand. You've mentioned you're an optimist, and you touched on some of the technologies and practices with potential to mitigate the problem. Would you mind expanding on that? So I guess in context, you know, just five years ago, before the Paris Agreement, my feeling was that so little was going on and that we were going to reach 4.5 or 5 degrees by 2100, that we were on the business-as-usual pathway. But with the Paris Agreement and the governments voluntarily trying to cut emissions, and, you know, maybe they aren't promising to cut emissions enough to reach 1.5 or 2 degrees, But, you know, estimates are that they're probably volunteering to cut them enough to reach three degrees. Three degrees is so much better than 4.5 or 5 degrees. That's a huge difference. And I'm also really encouraged by how much I see climate change in the news and on students' minds moving forward and all the innovations. I mean, we see the technological innovation from wind and solar, for example, that can really radically decarbonize the energy in the power sector. If we can come up with more technologies like that, if we can deploy these technologies quickly, we really have the opportunity to reach these low climate targets. I am so encouraged by the recent efforts. And as I said, maybe we won't reach 1.5 or 2, but 3 degrees would be such an improvement. And there is the possibility for the innovation in the carbon dioxide removal areas, which would allow us to reach the lower climate targets. And so I'm, I'm very encouraged at the ideas that are being presented and the energy that is going into these innovations. And I think that I'd like to see America continue to play a role technologically and in the business community of innovation and you know, of solving this very hard problem. I think we have a moral responsibility, but it's also going to be something that everyone is going to be moving towards. And I'd like to see the U.S. remain a leader in the technological and business innovation as we try to deal with climate change. Professor Mahawald, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time out of this beautiful Ithaca day to speak with us on Present Value. Thank you so much for having me. Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team, Michael Brady, Harrison Job, Caroline Wright, Serena Lavia, James Feld, Jonathan Tin, and Jack Morardi. I'm your host for this episode, Bernardo Espinosa. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kovalechi Pomongo, special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center, and Resonate Recordings for their technical assistance. Until next time, Thanks for listening to Present Value.